0: For the, uh, the remainder of the season, uh, for, for the summer, uh, we're going to be examining the attributes of God. Uh, I know Pastor Jay has been uh, speaking on James, uh, but um, we're going to take a little pause uh, for the rest of the summer until probably end of August. And we will be talking about the attributes of God. <clears throat> I think, you know, growing up in the church, uh, we are used to hearing uh, many attributes of God, right? Such as God is holy. God is good all the time, right? When we say, God is good, and people respond by saying, all the time, or God is good for sure, right? Or God is loving. And so uh, we have, if you've been to church, growing up in the church, we have heard many attributes of God. So we assume that we already know them. We already know the attributes of God. But what we do not realize is often that we have a very superficial understanding of his attributes and I think one of the problems that we have with our shallow understanding is that it leads to a deficient lifestyle when you have an incomplete and shallow understanding a flawed theology and understanding then it directly translates to an incomplete deficient life because that's all you know so you operate from what you know, right? Whatever the knowledge that you have of, about God, or about the Bible. You know, ancient people used to think, and probably understandably, they used to believe that the earth was flat, right? They thought that the, the, the earth was the center of the universe. It was, earth stayed the same, and the sun rises from the east and just sets in the, in the west, right? And so, and they thought that the earth was flat. Because as far as they could see, the earth was flat. They could not even possibly fathom that earth was round and earth was not the center of the universe. So because of that understanding, what happened is um, they were afraid to set sail far from the land because they thought that after you just sail out there far enough, you're going to come to the the, the corner of the earth and then you're going to fall off the cliff and you're going to die it's just kind of like um you know the uh, asgard in thor right you know the, the the you know how like in the asgard you know in the fictional like realm right there's the the water body of water and then after it goes some some distance and it falls off i don't know where it goes to i don't i didn't read or anything but so that was the understanding of people in the ancient times because they didn't know any better so they were afraid so you see like Whatever the understanding that we have, and that's what we operate from. So when we have a very incomplete, flawed understanding of who God is or about the Bible, that's what we operate from, and that we have, it leads to a you know, deficient life. The danger of possessing half-baked theology is that you can easily be swayed, swayed by and drawn to false teachings. I remember when I was in middle school, what do I know? But I thought I knew a lot of things about the Bible. And then one time I happened to hear a, a, a preacher. I assumed that he was, you know, and he said some things that I've never heard before. Right? And he said, basically, you know, demons, you know how they come about? We're like, I don't know. The Bible never talked about the origin of the demons and whatever, right? And so I was like, what, what is it? And he said, basically, that all the non-Christians, when they die, their soul, right? They don't know where to go. They just float around, and they become demons, right? And then they just you know, really harass people. They, you know, make your lives miserable. And then that freaked me out, right? As a, probably like an eighth grader, not knowing what's going on, don't have any, not, a whole lot of understanding about what the Bible says. So because he said it, I took it as truth, and I, I, was, I, I, I was so scared. Oh, my gosh, that means there are like billions of demons out there. Wow, that this is scary stuff, and it, I, I used to just be really afraid because of that wrong, false teaching that I heard under the guise of, under the name of Bible teaching, Bible preaching. See, so if we, um, and people who do not have a solid understanding of the Scripture, they're gonna be swayed and just get into like the prosperity gospel, right? God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be healthy all the time, and. You know, God wants you to be happy. Basically, you have a contract with God. If you just follow certain things, that God will bless you materially. And all these things. You know, usually the most challenging people or the kids, uh, kids to work with are usually the sixth graders um, because they think they know, right? Because they are the oldest kids in the elementary school or even at church. The sixth graders, they are the oldest kids in the children's group, right? So they have this, um, they think that they know it all. Um, like when you, usually like when I used to help out with VBS and things, yeah, I used to have a hard time with the sixth graders because they are like, they roll their eyes. Like when soon as like when we have like songs, they're like, oh, here we go. again! Yeah, I already know these songs. Or like when the, the, there's a message given, and they're like, I already heard this. And, um, and also the toughest people to minister to at church is usually the people who think they know it all, right? Been there, done that, I've heard it all. It's because we have, even though we may have a shallow understanding of the scripture, what the scripture teaches, because we kind of heard it you know, in passing, so we think we already know, and so we easily tune out, right? When we come to cer- cer- certain topics like this, the attributes of God. I already know this. So when you think you already know, you end up tuning out whatever you, you hear. And then um, you know people quickly, we tend to quickly lose interest in topics like this. However, the reality is that we do not know as much as we think we do. We really don't. And that's a problem. Uh, this past year, we had a, we did a discipleship group, and uh, we uh, used this uh, material uh, by Paul Washer, One True God, right? And so it's it talks about the attributes of God, and so I got to give credit where the credit is due, and um, and that is the basis, uh, at least for me, uh, in, in this series on the attributes of God, and you know, even throughout the year, uh, people in the discipleship group. Uh, a couple of them commented that they, even though they've been to church for all their lives, and and yet they have learned new things about the attributes of God. Even the things that they thought they already knew, they realized there are some things that they didn't really think through or they didn't really know much about in detail. And so today we'll be talking about spiritual nature of God. And today's passage tells us that God is spirit. And in the context, I know I didn't read through the whole passage because it was going to get really long, but the, basically the context is Jesus was speaking with a Samaritan woman you know, who had you know, many, uh, many men uh, in her life, in her life. And, um, and then uh, she was, um, at a certain point in the conversation, she was talking about the debate between the Jews and the Samaritans, right, uh, about the, the ongoing debate that was going on between, uh, uh, between the two uh, people, people group, right, the proper place of worship, because for the Jews, they said, you know, we have, to, we have to go to Jerusalem. That's where the temple is, and that's where we are to just offer sacrifices. Whereas the Samaritans, um, you know, they were kind of considered as a second-class people by Jews because they are not pure you know, breathe, uh pure blood. And they emphasize, no, we don't, you don't need to go to uh, Jerusalem. We can just stay here in Mount Gerizim, right? That was like the, the mountain where nearby where Jesus was uh, there at the moment. We can go to this mountain. This is where you are to worship God. Because the Samaritans, they only had uh, the first five books, the Pentateuch. They're the only, that was their Bible. So they had a very uh, incomplete understanding. Even the Jews had a very incomplete understanding. But anyways, they were just arguing and debating about that. And so he was saying, uh, she was saying, hey, which is right? There's this ongoing debate between uh, you Jews and us Samaritans. Who's right? And then he goes on to uh, talk about how, uh, but the hour is coming, and is now here when the true worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so here, the first point that I want to bring out to you is the truth as it says here, God is spirit. So is, that's the, the title of my message. Now, when we say God is spirit, it means that God is not material or corporeal, right? He does not possess a bodily, uh, a physical body. And this means that God is not uh, uh, confined to any physical limitations that we are subject, time and space. We we cannot be at the same place. uh, We cannot be at the two separate places at the same time. There are a lot of things that we are limited to. But because God is spirit, he's not limited to that. He's not confined to it. We or any, any created, anything created uh, for that matter cannot be omnipresent. But God is everywhere in his fullness continually. It's not just part of it like uh, when God is around, in, in this world. It's not like the head of God is in China and his arm is in the United States and his leg is in Africa somewhere. It's not like that. God is present everywhere in his fullness. And there's not a moment in time where God is not present anywhere in this universe. And we're not just talking about the earth, but everywhere, any corner of the universe. He is fully there continually. We are limited by time, but for God, there is no present moment where he is locked into like we are. We cannot see and we cannot know truly what's going to happen to us in the future, but he can because he's not locked into this present moment. He's not limited to that. And so theologians refer to God's freedom from limits and bounds as his infinity and his immensity. God upholds everything in being and he has everything, everywhere, always before him. And also, when we say God is spirit, it means that God is not visible. So we should not make images of him. How many of us, when we think of God, we somehow think of God in this grandfatherly figure? right, this like white, you know, like flowing hair just coming down, he's got a really like you know, and he's got a really nice beard you know, and um, he's such a good looking person and that's the, the image of God, the God the Father when we think of God, right but the truth of the matter is that is wrong because God is spirit, God doesn't have eyes like us right God doesn't have facial features. He's spirit. Now, the thing is, at times, the scriptures speak of God as if he possessed a physical body, right? The Bible does talk about his arms, his eyes, his face. So then, hey, Pastor Woody, you say God is spirit, so he doesn't have any form or any bodily parts or anything like that. So then, how do we explain this in light of the truth that God is spirit? I remember one person was, when I was talking about this, um, he was saying, but that really, I don't know. How can God then speak if he doesn't have mouth? He doesn't have a vocal cord. He doesn't have teeth, tongue. He doesn't have anything. So from what does he speak? How do we hear his voice? Right? So once again, we cannot think of God from, our point of view. But then what about those references in the Bible, talking about God's face, eyes, ears, arms, legs, whatever? All these references are what we call anthropomorphic expressions. It means God is simply attributing to himself human characteristics, To communicate a truth about himself in a way that we can relate to it, we can understand. When it says, God says, you know, uh, God is my arm, arm, is my arm too short or whatever, and my eyes are blazing fire and all these things. He doesn't really have eyes. He doesn't have nose to smell or ears to hear like we do. But it is so that we can understand a truth or the attribute about him. It's called, yeah, so that's called anthropomorphic expressions. So it's kind of like, you know the, um, is it the Disney movie, Inside Out? Have you guys seen that movie? You know, Inside, if you haven't seen it, you just plug your ears. You know, it's a spoiler alert. Um, But you know, like um, there, there there are five emotions, right, like in, in a person. Is it Riley? That's her name? Or whatever. And, and so it has like five emotions, like the joy, anger, sadness, all these like uh, emotions. But they they're not really there. But, you know, just, it's, it's an example of anthropomorphic right, expression. Trying to just kind of, you know, make, uh, just make a movie out of it. But in, in a way, that's what God is doing. He doesn't have mouth like we do. Arms. But he says it, he, it's described in the scripture so that we can understand, that so we can relate to what he's trying to communicate to us. You know, the Bible talks about God's wings and his people hiding under the shadow of his wings. Now, that does not mean that God has literal wings. It's just referring to God's protection and his care upon his people. So when we see these things like, you know, we should not, Take it literally and just picture in our mind that God has this grandfather, his grandfather figure. Just looks just like us, human beings, having physical features. He does not. Now, some of you may ask the question But, Pastor Widget, if God is invisible, how do we explain the passages where He seems to reveal Himself in a visible form? Now, there are passages in the Bible. Moses, when he just said, like, show me your glory. And so he just covered his you know, eyes and his face. And then God passed by in all his splendor and glory. And then the scripture says, Moses saw the back of God, backside of God. Elijah, when he was in the, in the cave, you know, despairing, and he was so discouraged. And you know, as God was recommissioning him, and then he wanted to see his glory. So once again, he came out to, the, to the, the mouth of the cave, and then he saw the glory of God from the backside. So it seems like, oh, see, Pastor Wittin, like the Bible does talk about God having a back, right, backside, or other things. To answer, we have to first understand an important principle of biblical interpretation. The passages of scripture that are, uh, are difficult to interpret should be interpreted in light of those passages that are clear and unmistakable. So, not, not every verse, not every paraphrase of the Bible is so clear cut. Right? There are passages, verses, books that are crystal clear, but there are other parts of the Bible that are obscure, it's like, what does this really mean? We don't fully know. Then what do we do? We always start from the clear passages. Whatever that's very clear from the scripture, in light of that truth and the foundation, we interpret other parts that are not as clear. The analogy of scripture. So, for example, um, the scripture clearly states that God is invisible. Hebrews chapter eleven verse twenty seven. I don't know if we have. Do we have that? Yeah. It says by faith. Uh, it's talking about um, Moses. He left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king or Pharaoh, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible, referring to God who is invisible. So there isn't really much uh, room for different interpretation or understanding because when it says God, when he's referring to God, He is invisible. Because there are passages like this where it's so clear. So from that, we understand. Then what about these places where it seems like God can be seen? His backside, right? Moses saw it. Elijah saw it. It's uh, inscripturated. So because scripture is very clear that he is invisible, so the visible appearances of God, well, except for the incarnation of Jesus Christ, Except for the case, all these references of the visibility of God should be interpreted or understood as visions. Visions, meaning symbolic representation of the spiritual reality. What, God, what Moses saw, what Elijah saw, what other people saw in terms of what they have seen about God or the, the physical features they've seen a vision of god visions of god a symbolic representation a symbolic of the spiritual reality ezekiel tells us in chapter 1 verse 1 that the heavens were opened and he saw ezekiel saw visions of god and later in verse 28 the appearance he saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the lord so when he what he saw It was a symbolic representation of God, not a God who has this grandfatherly figure wearing this white robe. It was a symbolic representation. Luke chapter 3, verse 22. When Jesus was uh, baptized, as uh, as he was baptized, and as he was coming out of the water, Luke describes that the Holy Spirit was descending with the appearance of a dove then are we going to say that Holy Spirit has a form of a dove? No. That he was just kind of just, just like, you know, just cute little like, you know, flying bird, birdie, just coming down and just uh, descending upon it? No. It was just the symbolic presence of God. And that's how he would describe the presence of God. When Moses saw the burning bush, it was a symbolic representation of God's presence in his midst to get his attention. Do you see? When we say God is spirit, we have to be careful not to think of God in a picture in our mind, this grandfatherly figure, that as if like God has eyes, nose, he speaks with the, you know, and um, has arms and has this really clean white robe. He does not. He doesn't have a form. And as we discuss the truth that God is spirit, Actually, there's another aspect that we have to understand. And the second point is that God is a person. God is a person. He's not some kind of formless force field in the universe that you tap into to generate magical power, like as in the Star Wars. Even from, like from the very beginning, like episode four, right? You know, as... Uh, Luke Skywalker was about to just go into the Death Star and try to destroy it. You know, instead of relying on, you know, the whatever the uh, the thing that was guiding him, you know, he hears the voice of Ben Kenobi, right? Obi Wan Kenobi, and says, you know, use your Force, Luke. So then, instead of just relying on that, he uses the Force out there, the the Jedi Force. Or you know, so you know they. It's talk, and sometimes we may think of God as some kind of. Oh, so you know. God is nothing like that. Some kind of force field. right? It's not an impersonal force that thoughtlessly moving the universe, or a cosmic consciousness that you connect to, to draw some kind of power from. The new age is all about it, right? Just be, just meditate, right, and just be connected to this consciousness, collective consciousness that is in the universe and be one with it. I mean, it sounds like all oh, kind of like, ooh, it sounds really kind of new and it's cool or something spiritual, but, you know, it's, it's, it's bogus, right? It doesn't make sense. God is not an impersonal force. God is a person. And neither is he a heartless tyrant crushing and manipulating his creation for selfish gains. Just because he has all the power, but that does not mean that he is like that, trying to just like enslave us and make our lives miserable. While God is spirit, he is a personal being. But then, what do we mean by the personhood? What do we mean by that? What, what is a person? What, is, what makes one a person? What separates us, human beings, from the animals? Is it the survival instinct? Well, the animals have survival instincts. Is it the fact that we are adaptable? We, we, We are adaptable. But the animals have the adaptability as well. So what truly separates us from animal world? It is that when we talk about God being personal being, it means that he is aware of his own existence. And it also means that he possesses both an intelligence and a will. And when we say God is personal being, it means that he is capable of entering into a personal relationship, rela- re- personal relationship with man. Being aware of his own existence is one of the most fundamental characteristics of a person. There are many religions outside of Christianity whose concept of God is either an, an impersonal force, like Buddhism, right? They don't even talk about. You know, it's just like a nirvana. You just have to achieve nirvana, right? That's Buddhism. There's no like personal God, or an essence that dwells within. All things, like pantheism, where God is everywhere. Hinduism, they have over 300 million gods. Oh my goodness, they're like tree tree god, there's a grass god, there's a moon god, sun god, what have you, whatever that you can find, there's a god. God is everywhere. The god of the Bible is a real person who is aware of his own existence as distinct from all other beings and things. Exodus chapter 3, 14 talks about God describing himself. I am. I am who I am. And it clearly shows that God recognizes his own existence as a person. He knows that he is. But he is fully aware of it. Other living things, they do not. They may just act, like, react, or have instincts but they do not have full recognition. The fact that they truly exist, they're fully aware, they don't really have the self-awareness. That God is a person also means he possesses an intellect and a will. The intellect is considered to be one of the primary characteristics of personhood. It's the ability to reason, um, perceive and under, or, or understand. That's what intelligence is. Scripture shows us that he possesses an intellect that goes far beyond our human comprehension. Nothing is beyond his knowledge and understanding. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, uh, says this, if we can put that up. Yes? Oh, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God clearly possesses, but we cannot think of God in a same level. Kind of, and we should not make the the mistake of we are pretty much kind of in the same continuum. We are on this one end, yeah. We're not that smart, but you know, if we just go. go smarter, 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 then maybe we can somehow get closer together. We are not even in the same continuum. We are on one spectrum and God in the other spectrum. No, God's intelligence, God, God's knowledge is in a totally different category altogether. Not even in the same level, not in the same category. He's, the totally, he's the totally the other The Bible makes it clear that God possesses a will as well, the power to determine His actions and the purpose. You know, God's choices, the choices that He makes, what He determines to do, flows from who He is, from His own nature, and uh, He uh, <clears throat> and uh, we have to understand that it is important to understand that the will of God and the will of man are two very different things. God is the only one who is completely free to do whatever he purposes in, in himself without limitations or even the possibility of failure. By contrast, most resolute determinations or the most determined decisions We may make, or even even by the most powerful men, often come to nothing. Donald Trump, when he became president, he said, "You know, I'm gonna, you know, just take. I'm just gonna do away with the, the, the the healthcare system." I mean, he was determined to do it. He made a promise; he he's gonna do it, but he couldn't do it. Joe Biden, same thing with the infrastructure infrastructure, like you know, plans with all these grand plans and all these things. Putin. Presidency in China. All these people, the most powerful men. Even though the decisions that they make, and even with the best of their ability and trying, oftentimes what they plan to do, what they are trying to do, it's not because they lack willpower, but you just cannot get it done. There are failures, but God is not like that. Not not like anything that we can ever uh, th- compare to. And also, when we say God is a person, that God being a personal being means that he is relational. That's what we mean. God is relational. And it really flows, once again, from who he is. He's a Trinitarian. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit live in perfect unity. There, he already, before anything was formed, created, he was in a relationship because of his fellowship, that he had the three persons in one Godhead, it flow out of it. So he's relational; that's just in his nature. And the implication of that is that God wants a personal relationship with us, created in His image. Even though it sounds really obvious to us, but it is the one of the it is one of the greatest truths. Of Christianity, that God, who is relational, wants a relationship, personal relationship, with His creation. You know, this past um, uh, you know vacation that I took. Uh, uh, so one part we we went to Asheville, um, North Carolina, and then we didn't even know about it, but there happened to be Billy Graham Training Center, not not where he lived or uh, his library is, um, but that's like a he established a training center. So we uh, just stopped by there just to see. And one thing that really struck, uh, struck me about him was his singular focus and conviction that God wants, though we are fallen, though we uh, were rebels, still God wanted a relationship with his creation. And that was his sole focus throughout his life. That's why he's, you know been to so many, like, Pretty much all over the world, evangelizing, preaching the gospel, inviting people to come step forward. Of course, there are some things that you know there were um, that people may not agree with in terms of his um, methodology and all these things, but one thing that he was so consumed by was the truth, a clear truth from the scripture. God wants a relationship with his creation, his people. God is not just a supreme being who is detached and is indifferent towards us. God created created us for the purpose of knowing him and having a loving relationship with him. We were to be the recipients of his goodness. But our rebellion severed our relationship with God. And it is only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and resurrection that the relationship could be restored. The gospel calls for trust and repentance on our part in Christ. And thanks be to God that he wants a relationship with people like us. I mean, he could have sovereignly let us perish in our sin. There is not a thing in, in, in him that he, you know, he had to, but he chose to. He didn't leave us perish without Christ and go into destruction. God has given us a chance at redemption through Christ. How precious is the gospel when He did not have to, but because of who He was, He's a God. He's a personal being. He is relational. He wants a relationship with us. Through the revelation of Christ, God invites limited, sinful people like us to claim him, who is an eternal God, to be their own God. And that is call of the the gospel. And in today's passage, tells us how we are to approach him. The God who is spirit must be worshipped, as Jesus says here, must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Worship in spirit quickly means uh, to worship God with all our being, sincerely and profoundly. I mean, every part of our being, our will, our emotion, our intellect, everything that we have, must be fully engaged in our worship. We don't just simply show up every Sunday, go through the same thing over and over again, where only our Bodies here while we are daydreaming, looking out the window and just thinking about something else. The thing that I have to do, the things that we have to do, get done before, the, before Monday. Everything within us has to be fully engaged. And also it means, worshiping spirit means that we have to worship God in the power and under the direction of the Holy Spirit. We worship from a heart. Renewed by the Holy Spirit. Nothing is true worship without a willing heart, which the, which the Holy Spirit can prepare alone. I mean, we can have all the right theology and doctrine, but without, without a sincere heart empowered by the Holy Spirit, you are not worshiping him in spirit. There is such thing as a dead worship. You know, Pastor Jay has been talking about you know even the faith without action, without deed is dead. There is such thing as a dead or useless faith. Same thing. There is such thing as a dead worship. There is a worthless, useless worship when you may just uh, regurgitate, say you know whatever, just parroting whatever that you heard, without your heart fully engaged in it. You have to worship God in spirit with sincerity. With all of our being fully engaged, and also we have to worship God in truth, and it means we have to worship God truthfully and with integrity. Sincerity by itself is not enough to approach God, because you know you can be sincere, but you can be sincerely wrong, right? Like look at me, right? I can sincerely believe that I can dunk, right? Um, I don't have that kind of hop, right? (laughs) I know there are some young, uh, small people who can just hop and just, I don't have that, right? But I can sincerely believe that, but I'm deranged. I'm I'm just like, you know, like this. I'm not, you know, so I can be sincere, but that doesn't, being sincere doesn't translate to being truthful, because you can be sincerely wrong. There are many devout Muslims or other religious people out there But their sincerity, even though they may be so committed to their cause and their religion, but their sincerity does not lead them to the right worship. You must stand on the truth of God's eternal word. It's not an either-or kind of proposition. It is both-and. There exists worship that's all about passion and sincerity. Devoid of truth. There are people who are just going crazy you know, during the worship time, praise time. Like, they are just up, jumping up and down, and they're just like, you know, c- cry and just like, lift their hands and just go, woo, you know, and go crazy. But if you do not have the right truth, all of that passion and sincerity is not the right worship that God, uh, that God desires or wants. And, there, uh, and also there is a worship that just the intellectual es- exercise. It's all about theology. They say the right things, but their hearts are not truly into it. They're just going through the motions with all the knowledge and the truth that they may claim to have, but without their sincere, willing, genuine heart, fully wanting to be here to worship God with all their hearts. That also is a dead worship. And here it says, that's the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. You see, the personal God, the relational Father, is also seeking the right kind of worshipers. It's not just us seeking God. Sometimes we think that in our worship, it's all about us just offering to God, and it's just true. But we think it's a one-way deal. But as we worship God, guess what? God is also seeking. God is searching. Himself is searching. As we worship, He wants an intimate, intimate personal relationship with us. But he's searching for those people who would worship Him in spirit and truth. May we offer, offer up worship in spirit and in truth, so that each time that we come together, not only on Sunday worship, but in our own times, approach God with all our hearts, genuinely, instead of. you know, just rolling our eyes. Here we go again. Another long service. Worship God. Sincerity based on the truth of God's word. And as we do so, God is also searching for those kind of people. Because God is spirit. And we offer that type of worship. Let's pray.